Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 96, The Particularities of Awakening. Welcome back to our Geeks of the Roundtable Dialogue. We continue to discuss an article by Shambhala Acharya, Judy Leaf, entitled Glimpses of Awakening. In this discussion, we take on all of the strange particularities of awakening. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. That brings me to uh, another paradox in awakening or the path here, which is that awakening is not a mental event. It's not coming to some intellectual insight. And on the other hand, if you don't have the right mental framework, or if you have some sort of illusion there, then you won't do the right practice Mm. and make progress. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mike, uh, about the language. And studying translation myself, realized how specific Buddhist language really is. And it just hasn't kind of seeped in enough, permeated through our culture and Western Buddhism. And we tend to use a lot of words very loosely and we just adopt them and start using them in totally different ways. So if someone says wisdom, like they apply it to anything they're doing, you know, like I'm wise at work. It's like, no, that's not realization. Um, so I think that's a good point. I wanted to chime in with another user comment. They voiced this one a couple of times. So um, if enlightenment is defined as realization of non-duality, how does that relate to the realization of emptiness? From the way I understand it, it is the realization of emptiness. It's no different. No difference, right? It's just two words to describe the same understanding. Mm-hmm. The only thing that there might come a difference, like in the Tibetan tradition. Oh, I'm sure. Is, um, <laughs> well, and not even necessarily a difference, but like, you know, in the Shintong, Medyamaka tradition, <laughs> we're geeks here, dude. Um, they might make a mention of like emptiness and luminosity. You know, ah, there might right. be another, another aspect brought into that realization. So that would be the only thing I would think if, and it's not even necessarily a difference. It's maybe elaborating more on it from my perspective, but. Yeah, and I think there's a particular problem, at least for Westerners, with the term emptiness. Mm. Because we think of emptiness as an absence, a deficit, something is missing. And a term that has been used outside the Buddhist tradition that, that I like a lot, and there are some, I think, examples where it has been used successfully in Buddhism, is space. Mm-hmm. It, mm. We like the idea of space for us. Westerners in particular, you know, the wide open spaces, far horizons, and and so forth. But non-duality and emptiness, as you said, are really the same thing from the perspective, if you can even say it's a perspective, of awakening, since it's not actually a point perspective. It's fullness without the particularity of individual self. Right. So, So hard to explain. Yeah, yeah. So, so in a sense, what you're saying, you know, we think of emptiness as something's missing, but really the only thing missing in emptiness is a reference point, self. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't know if that's getting off the topic, <laughs> but any other user? Oh, well, they keep chiming in. It's real nice. Complaints. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like how you're talking about that. Um, <laughs> I wish we had a more traditional viewpoint on enlightenment here that we could bash. Not bash, but explore, because <laughs> yeah, I, kidding, I think yeah. it is really common. Um, yeah, it's true. 
Maybe not amongst the Buddhist geeks. We, we're we're two in agreement. I mean, Hokai's chiming in lots, and so's Rohan. Well, let's hear it. Yeah, what, what any? Um, so I'll just let me just read down a few of the comments. Yeah, yeah. So, for most untrained people, just being amounts to really doing something that looks like being. It seems to me you have to learn, unlearn doing to get to being. Uh huh. Ah, that's definitely right on. Hokai says non-duality is recognition of identity of emptiness and everything arising. Ah. Uh, and he also says yes, spaciousness, great as transparency is. And Rohan says for terminology that the terminology issues drop away as his practice matures, like that becomes less of an issue. Mm-hmm. What drops away? Um, so we were mentioning about specificity on, on terminology, and he was saying that as he goes along his practice, that there's less issues in getting those terms correct. And I think that's actually, yeah. for my study, my, in my own practice, but my study of the Tibetan tradition, when you're studying like first and second turning teachings, everything is freaking defined to a T. There's nothing left undefined. But in Vajrayana, the way that masters write texts is they'll, they'll leave out grammar, verbs, everything. It's just totally ambiguous as hell. And, <laughs> and all terminologies can mean anything. You can just pick from a list. Oh, yeah, bliss, luminosity. Yeah, well, I'll just pick anything there. And uh, that's I got that feedback from Jim Valby, a, a major translator in the Sogjin tradition. So there could be a lot of truth to that as practice develops. Terminology maybe is less of an issue. Well, here's a quote from the article that I really liked. The question arises as to whether we are practicing seeking and developing devotion in order to get the prize, the big E, in other words, enlightenment. Right. Or whether it goes the other way around, that we practice, seek, and develop devotion as the expression of enlightenment. I think this is a common thing that people wrestle with. I certainly have wrestled with this as well. And let me give you my solution and see if you disagree with me or if we're all too geeky and we agree again. Go. But uh, (laughs) in my understanding, at least, that the answer is yes, it's both. Um, That We are practicing, seeking, and developing devotion in order to get the big prize. But the way that you practice that, I mean, because you're you're fundamentally changing your relationship to all experience. And so the way you practice that is you practice enlightened mind or uh, equanimity in every moment or however you want to describe that. And it eventually culminates with that kind of insight. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder... So there's like two perspectives. One is just objectively looking at like maybe from an outsider, from a teacher to a student, when what's really happening and then from the actual student practicing. And I wonder if some of it's actually, I think you, I agree to a certain extent on that, that, that both are true, but I wonder if both are true in the sense of developmentally. Uh, one, one of those mm-hmm. sides are emphasized earlier in practice and then you start switching, you know, of, uh, the expressing comes later, like where your mm-hmm. practice turns into just an expression more so. That's what you sit down and uh, do. That's probably I, right. Yeah, because yeah. I didn't, I didn't have that uh, understanding earlier in my practice and it changed. At first it was very much about, I want to get this thing. Right. Cause what you have happen, I think is people, what we were just mentioning earlier, like someone will sit down and I'm just going to be enlightened and they just sit down and they're like, Oh, what the hell? They don't make any progress. They don't make progress. So they need to have something to bait them through, you know, and then it's like later, okay, chill on the, you know, think grasping and achieving aspect. Yeah. Of that. Well, I think part mm-hmm. of the, part of the issue on a practical level, at least what I found is, I came in with a strong desire to get enlightened, like so strong. Mm -hmm. And I sat down and there it was, you know, over and over, the strong desire coming up, (laughs) thoughts about getting enlightened, um, uh, fantasies about what it would be like. And and really like the process has been of a wearing down of that, uh, of those things just kind of uh, arising, passing, arising, passing. That's not me. And, and really, the desire is not a problem. It's not even the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not like if I have a desire to get enlightened, uh, or get somewhere else that it, that's even an issue with regards to the practice itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, good point. Yeah, my practice, 
not quite as much uh, working with the desire for enlightenment, working with the desire to be doing some other practice that would get me there faster. That was like yeah. the main obstacle I had for a long time in my practice. <laughs> and the, the factor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the practice has been just actually coming back to this practice and really doing it, whatever this practice was at the mm. time. Good point. Yeah, with regard to the quote from Judy Leaf, I had presented to one of my students some time ago, a student who works as a substance abuse counselor and has himself recovered from that mm-hmm. and has gone through a 12-step program. I asked him, what is it? Do you fake it till you make it, which is something that is a, <laughs> used in that therapy community a lot, mm-hmm. or are you totally authentic? And I presented this as a kind of koan for him to consider. And he came back with a very good response, which can't be summarized in just one little soundbite. But basically he said it is both. You try to do what you think is the correct practice, and you try to be benevolent, and you try to be aware, and you engage in certain disciplines, but you don't represent yourself as having accomplished more than you really have accomplished. Mm. And I think this is a a real issue, this misrepresentation of actual attainment Mm. in the Buddhist community or any really spiritual community or in business or anywhere else where you might be able to, to put it crudely, make a buck if you can fool enough people. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, this is an interesting point because the very cultural tendency we have to not talk about enlightenment is the very thing that makes it possible, I think, for people to make fallacious claims about enlightenment because there's enough people aren't talking about it. They're not talking about the criterion. They're not talking about the stages. They're not talking about what someone who's really realized this stuff would actually, how they would actually describe it. And so there's no real peer review. Yeah. And maybe behind closed doors, there is some sort of peer review. I hope so in some traditions, but a lot of people have an experience which usually it's just an initial breakthrough, not even enlightenment, and then they think they're done, and they go around, Mm -hmm. they're extremely charismatic, and they may even have a lot of people following them, and that to me seems like the nightmare scenario Mm -hmm. in the spiritual, and and I think talking about enlightenment and really hammering out what is it, and how can we recognize it, and how can we cultivate it and promote it, and how can we also make sure that we're peer-reviewed and we say, no, that's not it, you need to keep going and keep people grounded, uh, ironically enough. You talk about enlightenment, it actually keeps the conversation grounded. Exciting. Um, Yeah, Yeah. I think one of the inherent problems with that, or maybe one of the solutions to that, though, is because many of the the false teachers, the false prophets... um, (laughs) Got three orders. (laughs) Got the orders of the perverters of the teachings of the Shambhala tradition (laughs) would have us do. But one of the problems is that many people who had that initial awakening are in that kind of charismatic arising and passing stage. Right. I think maybe what needs to happen more is realize teachers point that out and engage with independent realizers more because I think that's where the biggest dangers come in. I mean, there are also non-fully realized teachers within tradition. Sure, sure. But I think the most dangerous ones are often outside of traditions right? Um, and need to be engaged with and maybe even brought into richer models and that sort of thing. Although those, you know, those are the people you least want to engage with when you're talking about the path as the really charismatic guru. I'd pull in another couple of comments. Now, I already know that this answer is going to be 
immediate. I already know the answer from this whole group that's on this call, <laughs> but I figure it's related. So the first part of the question is how possible is it to actually become enlightened? So I told you I know the answer. <laughs> is it actually relatively common, which is a different question. Uh, that's a great question. So I figured I'd just go ahead and throw it in there. Yeah. Well, it depends on relatively common. I mean, is that like 5% of people that practice? Is it 2%? Is it 10% of people that why don't do you just give your since you're the metrics man why don't you give us your percentage <laughs> I don't know I mean I really don't know from what I can tell the number of people that spend a few thousand hours practicing and seem to have fairly encouraging models and good teachers a pretty high percentage of them have at least initial awakening experiences we call Kensho or stream entry or in the five path Tibetan models mm-hmm. the, the path of seeing mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's pretty common and I think it's way more common than most people acknowledge. Right. So that's the answer to both questions, really. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to jump in here. And I agree that stream entry is probably a lot more common than many people would imagine. I would love to see some hard numbers. Yeah. <laughs> if we could possibly do this yeah. in a sociological type of study of practitioners and get some ideas of people at each stage of awakening. Uh, I suspect that we would not be terribly surprised to find that there are fewer and fewer people at the higher and higher stages of awakening. Mm -hmm. But I think that to make the kind of progress that I would like to see in getting the real teaching out and real practice and clearing away the weeds and the misconceptions here so that we can plant seeds with a likelihood of a good, fruitful harvest, we need to bring in to our Buddhist tradition and all the traditions of awakening, the genuine spirituality versus religious dogma, just believe this and you'll be okay. We we need to bring in a kind of Western, rational, scientific, evidence-based approach. This is not faith-based. We want to see concrete results in people's Mm -hmm. lives, and we want to take measurements. At least I do. (laughs) (laughs) So, um... So Rohan says, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this name right, Ubakin Uba Uba used to give out stream entry certificates. Let's yeah. get some accreditation going. And I think, uh, I think, <laughs> I love Mah- that. I think Mahasi Saida used Dude, to as well. awesome. Or at least somebody in his tradition. So <laughs> one other thing, uh, someone wanted us to define stream entry. Would somebody uh, want to do that real quick? I could give a crack at it and maybe you guys could correct me. My understanding of stream entry in the Theravada tradition the way it's described in the commentaries, the Vasudhimaga, is that one, while observing the three characteristics of experience and having enough concentration and stability of mind to do that, will progressively go through a series of insights into the nature of phenomenal experience. And that ends with a brief event or moment called stream entry, where it's the first experience of nirvana or emptiness, and it's said to change the mind in some way. No, no going back. The, the, back. Yeah, there's a sense of which uh, mm-hmm. it's a breakthrough in which it, it's very hard, maybe ne- not even possible barring extreme circumstances, to regress. Yeah, and cool. should be clarified with the earlier stage of the arising and passing, which is right, more right. this grand experience that may be accompanied by visions or charismatic right. bursts of energy, etc., and follows the dark night. And the dark night it follows that, that yeah. rising path. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Mike? I don't know. In the, in the so Zen I, tradition, I they might describe it quite differently, huh? Yeah. Zen is one of those traditions where, because it's culturally Japanese, a lot has been done with a nod and a wink and an implicit understanding 
it's not really mind-to-mind transmission. It's more like culturally, you know, in Japan, a lot is implied and you're expected to understand because Japanese culture is extremely complicated. Hmm. But once you learn it, and I can't claim to be an expert, but, but once you're inured in it, you know certain things are just not said and they can be implied with something very small, a gesture, a particular symbol. Because I'm a gross, crude Westerner, I like everything to be spelled out. <laughs> and I, I generally tell my students, I'm an unorthodox Zen teacher. You, you may expect something that's very Japanese. I don't speak Japanese. I'm going to give you the benefit of what I have realized in my own practice. And I'm going to do it in a way that I believe has the highest percentage probability of helping you. Mm-hmm. So if you come to me with these Japanese models, I'm going to say, you know, a lot's not said here. That's a wonderful teaching story, but what happened before these two characters got together? Right. And that then teacher and, and the student, yeah, there's a whole backstory there. There's a lot of cultural understanding you're supposed to have before you read these stories, and that's simply missing, which unfortunately also makes it possible for a lot of people to um, fake it. You know, I'll Mm. act the way I think a Zen master is supposed to act, and uh, a lot of people like that. And you'll you'll get, if you can fake it very well, a lot of people uh, coming after you for your sage advice, which you can also fake very easily by telling people, oh, just keep sitting, just keep sitting. From my perspective, that's a total cop-out. I use a lot of the Vipassana insight approach and and language in in my teaching, Mm. and I reach outside to anything that I think will help the student. Mm-hmm. That's great. Nice. Any other comments flowing in from the Oh, they'll, they'll keep flowing. I think these folks on here are geeky. They'll just keep it coming. If you want me to share another one? <laughs> sure. All right. This is geeky. Admit, and Rohan's admitting that it's geeky. Okay, thanks, says, Rohan. <laughs> uh, yeah, but recognize that is Burmese influences in Thai Theravadan traditions. The practice styles results in less structured Basuti Maga obsessed format. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point. I mean, certainly I'm coming mostly out of the Burmese Vipassana tradition. Daniel Ingram is. But I'm really quite familiar with the Thai tradition. And um, it seems like they lean towards a more loose description of awakening. And they definitely don't emphasize, they don't seem to, at least Ajahn Chah didn't seem to emphasize as much the stages leading up to awakening. But he also, uh, when I've sat with Jack Cornfield, Jack's mentioned that Ajahn Chah said things like, well, if you're here for more than six months at my monastery and you haven't gotten stream entry yet, I don't know what you're doing here. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's good. So, I mean, he certainly would, would occasionally mention it. And he certainly, people claimed he was an arhat. I mean, they certainly made that claim for him. Though I don't guess he ever publicly made it that himself, mm. which to me is too bad. But that's kind of the culture of the Thai tradition and the monastic codes and stuff. You can't really talk about your attainments, which is another interesting point. Mm-hmm. Or you can, but you can't talk about them and make a mistake. Oh. <laughs> or it's like a major issue, apparently. That's my understanding. Oh, pa. Yeah, you can't make a claim and it not be correct. But but since this stuff is really tricky, it's hard to sometimes make claims and know where you are on, unless you yeah. have a lot of help. Yeah. We can always say, I think I'm an Arhat. <laughs> yeah, you guess you could. <laughs> okay, well, I think, I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I think we're coming to a good closing point. I'm yeah. wondering if anyone has any final remarks or comments, uh, either in the chat room or <clears throat> from the four of us. It's been fun. Mm-hmm. 
I really like this. Yeah. I would encourage everybody listening, even though not just sit is uh, the instruction, I would encourage everyone listening to definitely continue to practice in a serious way and go on retreat and practice daily and, and that this stuff is doable to some extent, at least. Rohan says he's all geeked out. Oh, oh yeah. Right. We geeked him out. That's an accomplishment. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Great. Excellent. Well, thank you, Mike, for joining us from New Mexico. It was really good having you on. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, that's another... Do you want to play the Geeks of the Roundtable to close it off? Yeah. Hold on, folks here. We want to. We want you to hear the Geeks of the Roundtable music. Um, it's just... We always play it at the very beginning, and you have to hear it. All right. We're we going go. to get the soundtrack music stream entry. <laughs> this is what goes with uh, your stream entry. When, when you, you... This is what you'll hear in your, in your consciousness. <laughs> Geeks of the Roundtable. <laughs> I've attained stream and stream. <laughs> stream entry lasts a little bit. It's at least about 30 seconds. <laughs> and then it fades. And then it fades. <laughs> Which it actually does. <laughs> so there you have it. Geeks of the round table. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.